Social Service Dashi. I am Jingyao. On this podcast, I've traditionally featured the research and social work and projects of others. I make a small exception today because I want to share about two recent research journal articles I published, which I think, in an interesting fashion, draws from earlier episodes I produced for past seasons of this Social Service Dashi podcast. I've divided this episode. Into three parts. In the first part, I explore the first paper titled "Youth Civic and Community Engagement Under Singapore's COVID-19 Lockdown: Motivations, Online Mobilization, Action, and Future Directions." A link to the full paper is in the show notes. This paper draws directly from Social Service Dashi's first season, COVID-19 Community Chronicles. After Singapore announced the first circuit breaker from April 9th to June 24th, 2020, we had guests running community initiatives, some of whom talked about structural or systemic issues. In the second part, I feature the second paper. It's titled "Democracy and Active Citizenship Are Not Just About the Elections: Youth, Civic, and Political Participation During and Beyond Singapore's Nine-Day Pandemic Election." GE 2020, and likewise, a link to the full paper is in the show notes. The nine days was Social Service Law SG's second season, and the season was titled as such because that was the length of the general election campaign period. From June 30th to July 11th, 2020, we solicited your views on election issues and candidates and their thoughts on the election. And in the third and final part of this episode, very briefly, I summarize the key findings and reflect on the potential of podcasts in Singapore and beyond to bridging research, practice, education, and policy. Parts of this episode were adapted largely from a June 2022 seminar I delivered as part of the Academia SG Junior Scholar Seminar. You can also check out the link in the show notes if you prefer complimentary visual aids in addition to the two papers. First, youth civic and community engagement under Singapore's COVID-19 lockdown: motivations, online mobilisation, action, and future directions. Again, a link to the full paper is in the show notes. So what we know, we know that disasters like the pandemic have adversely affected young adults around the world, but many have also been engaged civically and in the community. Now we also know that they see and experience the disproportionate social economic fallout on disadvantaged communities, which has led them to not only be involved but also question systems and structures which may have rendered them. Or those communities vulnerable in the first place. However, in the Singaporean context and beyond, I was interested in three additional things: first, motivations of young adults to be involved; second, what those civic and community engagement processes look like, especially with physical and social distancing measures in place. It was a long time ago, but those were in place for some period of time at the time. And third, the longer-term social political implications of their engagement. So here's what we found in terms of a chronological process over five steps. First, the pandemic and lockdown were triggers. 
So folks said, my too liao, right? With folks adjusting to government measures, again, a long time ago, but DOSCON orange and matching the speed of the lockdown announcement. So that was the first step. Second, with motivations. So the young adults saw and experienced community needs and wished to do something in response. As one of them said, what used to be invisible, it is now really visible. Next, with online mobilization, I quote, once it. Everything has been taking place over social media or over online chat groups. And then initiatives at the time were started or moved online. Volunteer teams were built virtually and they also communicated with communities over the internet. So that was the first, second and third steps. In the fourth step, tweaking the platforms and building muscles was about folks taking action. Right. So taking action was the fourth step. Over time, it was apparent that they demonstrated introspection in terms of evaluating their initiatives, adjusting their initiatives, working across different initiatives and needs, and focused on centering community members. And then finally, I want to spend a little bit more time on the final theme on future directions and the young adults making use of the crisis. Now, across the young adults in the sample, there was broad agreement that the social economic challenges we've been seeing in the context of the pandemic are interconnected. However, and however, the respondents differed on the extent to which they thought structural problems were pervasive, and they also differed in terms of how they framed their initiatives vis-a-vis -vis the government. So in this sense, there were two distinct approaches that emerged from the data, right? The first group saw community needs and initiatives as evidence that the government should have done more even before the pandemic. So that was the first group. On the other hand, the other group saw and thought that government policies were adequate and thus their own initiatives were just plugging very specific gaps. Right. There are two kind of illustrative quotes illustrating the distinction. Right, Those in the first group, they saw community needs and initiatives as evidence that government should have done more. The first they said, one said, People have been facing financial and physical troubles since long before COVID-19 started. And arguably, if we had reached out to each other earlier to look after each other and to make sure that the government is looking after everybody equally, then we have been a lot more resilient for this crisis. So that's the first group. They saw community needs and initiatives as evidence that government should have done more. Now, what about the second group? Now, one from the second group said, and reflected, is there still value in doing this? Because if the government is already providing a one-time relief, we might not need to come in. Now, he goes on to explain that the government's COVID-19 measures were, quote, robust enough, and that the challenge was more informational and communi communication-related, right? So a few insights and implications to round this section, right? So a few things, bear in mind the distinction and also the overall finding. Now, first, the speed of youth online mobilization in Singapore when the pandemic first struck is consistent with what we've seen and observed around the world. Over time too, these Singaporean youth and young adults were not just focused on their own initiatives and organizations, but many of them championed collaboration, community building, and the centering of community members. These expressions of solidarity, recognizing interconnectedness, are likely to shape continued civic and community engagement in Singapore. Nevertheless, these forms and approaches of youth, civic and community engagement are not homogeneous, they're not the same, right? In the context of such engagement, leading folks to challenge or support the social political status quo, there are some, 
who will advocate for more structural changes and who are more likely to be skeptical of government policies, right? So those were the first group. Conversely, those who perceive government policies to be adequate could be more willing to work with the government. Now, this is not likely to be a dichotomy of opposition or support, and future studies should illustrate a spectrum of different engagement forms. I also think it's likely to vary based on the types of different policies and issues, and that's for another study to be engaged in in the future. Second, democracy and active citizenship are not just about the elections. Youth, civic and political participation during and beyond Singapore's nine-day pandemic election, GE 2020. Likewise, a link to the full paper is in the show notes. Reflecting back, this feels like an eternity ago, but we were one of the earliest countries in Singapore to hold elections under pandemic lockdown. Right. COVID-19 at that point in time was the big electoral focus, but a range of other social economic challenges were of interest too. The biggest difference with the pandemic election was the mode of campaigning. Instead of having huge physical rallies, the lockdown and physical distancing measures meant that folks were consuming and producing political content virtually. And it is against this background that I was interested in how young voters were engaging and what that meant for their future participation. So here's a summary of the findings. I broadly categorize youth motivations as either building awareness and activism or taking action. And then the forms of political and civic participation occurred before G2020 and between general elections or during G2020. Now, in both instances, Awareness and activism were built through the consumption and production of content. Between elections, youth acted through correspondence by corresponding and talking to political leaders. They were directly involved in civic or political events. During G 2020, they acted through engaging with candidates and their parties, as well as some who engaged in direct party volunteerism. Finally, what we found across the board was that respondents were involved in a range of what we term conventional and non-conventional activities. Right, Conventional activities are usually associated with mass electoral politics like voting, campaigning. The non-conventional ones are usually not associated with direct forms of electoral activities. And for respondents, these youth respondents, they transitioned into or expanded online participation without difficulty. And also, any form of civic and political participation during G2020 resulted in resolve to continue or expand their engagement after G2020. So in our sample, respondents, they stressed that participation should not only occur during elections and that building awareness and activism and taking action were mutually reinforcing motivations. So what this means is that those who consume and produce political content during GE 2020, they were committed to acting even after the election, while those who were already involved in action then resolved to harness, take advantage of this heightened interest in politics of other youth, right? I thought this set of sentiments is nicely summarized by this quote, right? And this respondent said, quote, over the decades, we have developed the kind of mentality that politics only matters during election campaigns. We just have this frenzy of political activity for one or two weeks, and then everyone goes back to what they were doing before that. 
other respondents also had very similar expression, expressions and resolutions, right? One said democracy and active citizenship are not just about the elections. Your vote does not just die after polling day. Learning about politics does not happen just during elections. And then someone also said it is a mistake to think that elections or democracy are only a once-in-a-five-year affair. And a few insights and implications to conclude this section apart, right? So three things. Number one, both between elections and during G2020, awareness and activism were built through the consumption and production of predominantly online content because physical distancing, uh, social distancing. And during the election, COVID-19 and post-pandemic recovery were especially prominent issues of interest. Moreover, what we found was that the youth respondents, they transitioned seamlessly to online forms of social media and internet participation. That's the first. Second, as the COVID-19 pandemic increased digital engagement, the youth in this study emphasized the importance of civic and political participation beyond elections per se, as you heard from those many quotes, right? Your vote does not just die after polling day, democracy and active citizenship, not just about the elections. What this signaled is a continued mix of online, offline, conventional, non-conventional forms of participation. The youth respondents diversified their participation because they were aware of the limitations of each participation form. Finally, Civic and political participation during Singapore's pandemic election resulted in the resolve among youth respondents to continue or expand their engagement in the long term. In particular, building awareness and taking action were mutually reinforcing motivations beyond GE 2020. Finally, in this third part, let me summarize the key findings and reflect on the potential of podcasts to bridging research, practice, education, and policy in Singapore and beyond. Now, there are three substantive findings from the two research journal articles I've highlighted so far in this episode. The first is that among young Singaporeans, we've observed significant demonstrations of civic engagement and political participation during the 2020 circuit breaker and GE 2020. So that's the first. Second, this significant involvement seems likely to sustain over time, right? Across the two research articles, I've documented and we've documented long-term muscle memory for subsequent mobilization and action, community building with community members, and the honing of skills for digital and social media engagement. Third, this involvement is not homogeneous, it's diverse. We've spent some time illustrating the distinct approaches to government engagement, which I think is likely to run along a spectrum. And my sensing is that there is still a large number of youth and young adults in Singapore who remains to be engaged. From these substantive findings, it's clear that podcast episodes can be used as research data. But I also feel strongly that podcasts can be used in addition to research for practice, policy, and education. In this vein, I've been thinking of framing podcasts for research and public engagement in this manner. I know it's a little corny given the water metaphorical reference and the alliteration, but here's my framework. Podcasts as catchments, as channels, and as confluence. So catchments, channels, and confluence. Let me take them in turn. Most fundamentally, with podcasts as catchments, 
podcasts and podcast episodes can function as repositories for information and data. Now, it's a new, it's not a new concept because I'm reminded that historians have used oral history to record interviews or personal recollections, family experiences, and significant past events. In Singapore, what comes to mind are the Singapore Queer Oral History Podcast, which documents stories of queer Singaporean folks. The history of Singapore was probably one of the earliest history-based podcasts in the country, though since then there have been a number of others, including event-specific limited series, such as Aware's Saga Podcast. And given that we can always build upon, review, and use these podcast episodes, it's no surprise that podcasts have been most widely used in classroom teaching and learning. In addition to that, throughout today and this episode, I hope I've demonstrated the advantages of using podcast episodes as research data. And I feel that podcasts could also be useful extensions for researchers to engage with the public. The journal article does not have to live behind a paywall, and researchers don't have to wait for the mainstream media to pick up research findings which may have practice or policy implications. And to round up this concept of podcasts as catchments or reservoirs of information and data, in the Singaporean social work context, podcasts such as Social Work Meet Assessment, which we have featured here, and the layer podcasts run by social work students and educators have created additional spaces for rich conversations on social work and social policies. Next is podcasts as channels. So initially as catchment, now podcasts are channels. We're not just collecting information and data, but actually using podcast episodes to communicate and facilitate exchange across research, practice, policy, and education. To me, this is one step ahead of just putting content out there to actually engage with current issues and engage in conversation. Now, for instance, an early mistake I feel I sometimes made with socialservice.sg was to just feature a profile nonprofits and social initiatives without pushing them further to talk about how the founders or representatives position their work vis-a-vis -vis other efforts or other existing efforts or within Singapore's social political landscape. Now, these are entirely well-intentioned efforts, right? Though I think we've reached a point where a little, more, a little bit more rigor is needed. In the past year, in 2022, on our podcast here, we've invited researchers to not just talk about their research findings, but also to respond to criticisms and reviews of their work in the public. Again, to me, that's an easy extension because researchers are already used to engaging with their peers and conversation through journal articles, and so now the podcast platform offers an opportunity to involve and engage the public. Remember, podcasts as channels. Increasingly too, we've really enjoyed pushing researchers to actually articulate what you mean by practice and policy implications, right, of their work and to have them dialogue with practitioners. In other words, it's striving to answer, especially for research related to social issues, the quote-unquote, so what question. So what does this mean? So why is this important? So what do we care about this research article that you've just put out? Over time, consistent with the metaphor of a channel between practice and education, we're interested in how teacher and student perspectives may influence social work practice and reflections associated with it. Ultimately, podcast catchments and channels should lead to this notion of confluence, wherein podcasts offer a broader platform for advocacy and collective discussion of issues. Most immediately, 
What comes to mind are practitioners advocating for a sector of community change, as well as researchers helping facilitate advocacy and activism. From a policy perspective, we've seen how podcasts can be used to communicate parliamentary work and gather research and practice views. For example, as featured on this podcast as well, social work-related concerns have increasingly converged around the issues of professionalization, pay and compensation, burnout and retention, as well as case management and caseload. Over the longer term, I think there is potential to create an audience and build an engaged community. I say this because social service.sg is fairly niche in terms of our focus on social policies and issues. And even though in Singapore, podcasts related to entertainment and comedy and the popular media make up the lion's share of listens, we've actually seen our listenership grow very steadily in the past two years. More importantly, folks like yourself will start listening to podcast episodes on this platform. Do stick around for future content too. Now, there's work to be done, and this feels really, to me, like an open space with plenty of future opportunities. Thank you very much for listening. This is likely to be the final Social Service Strategy episode for 2022, as I and we take some time off to take stock and plan for the new year. Working on this podcast has always been a lot of fun, and I can't wait to share our new episodes in 2023. Finally, please feel free to get in touch if you have ideas, or if you'd like to be a guest on the, on the podcast. I can always be reached at sppkjy at nus.edu.sg. That's sppkjy at nus.edu.sg. In the meantime, be well, stay safe, and make time for yourself and your loved ones.